0: Hello, and welcome to The Dirt, a podcast about archaeology, anthropology, and our shared human past. I'm Anna. And I'm Amber. And boy, have we been sick. Yeah, it's been a fun couple of weeks. And I'm a doctor, but I'm not that kind of doctor. So the best I can do, listeners, is prescribe you a healthy dose of knowledge about ancient medicine, which is what we're talking about today. And we're going to start as far back as possible,
1: 250,000
0: or so years ago with the Andertals because we're in charge. It is a powerful feeling, and it's one that you, the listener, can purchase for your very own. That's right. You can control the dirt. As a hot holiday deal for a one-time donation of $25, you can provide an episode topic that Amber and I will then research and present, you know, as long as it's related to archaeology and or anthropology and not terrible. And you can do that at thedirtpod.com. Dot com.
1: yeah. Terms and
0: conditions may
1: apply. And now back to our Neanderthals in progress.
0: Yes. So this is uh, Neanderthal healthcare. Healthcare is in quotes, but it's a couple of really interesting studies that indicate that Neanderthals may have, uh, first of all, had social structures that um, meant that groups you know, members of groups cared for one another, and also that uh, they may have been using um, some plant resources to improve their health. So let's talk about that. Um, A study from the University of York, published in the journal Quaternary Science Reviews, Quaternary, 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 suggests that healthcare could have had a major strategic role in Neanderthal survival. So previous research from the same team has already suggested that compassion and caring for the injured and dying could have been a factor in the development of healthcare practices. Okay, sure. But further (laughs) investigation has now shown that there were evolutionary drivers behind it, too. So the researchers investigated the skeletal remains of more than 30 individuals where minor and serious injuries were evident, but did not lead to loss of life. So there was evidence of healing post-injury. The samples displayed several episodes of injury and recovery, suggesting that Neanderthals must have had a well-developed system of care in order to survive. And so a system of care that doesn't mean like an HMO, that just means that they supported <laughs> Well, they one weren't one, on Kaiser. They, they cared for their own. So Dr. Penny Spikins from the University of York's Department of Archaeology says, quote, "Neanderthals faced multiple threats to their lives, particularly from large and dangerous animals but in popular culture, Neanderthals have such a brutish and strong image that we haven't really thought too deeply about their vulnerabilities before now. We have evidence of healthcare dating back 1.6 million years ago, and then she doesn't say anything about what that is, so question mark? (laughs) But we think it probably goes further back than this. We wanted to investigate whether healthcare in Neanderthals was more than a cultural practice. Was it something they just did or was it more fundamental to their strategies for survival? And, you know, I have a note to myself here. How do you separate the two of them? Well, maybe like if it's like fundamental you know, Neander- to your survival, you would just do it, right?
1: Yeah. Well, also maybe they just did it like it was, you know, breast
0: augmentation. What?
1: Well, breast augmentation isn't fundamental to somebody's survival. Maybe she's talking about cosmetic surgery.
0: I don't think that's what she's talking about.
1: I don't know. She doesn't say you what the evidence of healthcare dating back one point six million years is.
0: Yeah, that's true. But also they didn't have you know silicone implants then, so it would just be like surgery and then stuff a bunch of leaves in there. What do you do? Every- <laughs> what are you gonna do? I don't know. So to to continue uh, Dr. Spikin's quote, the high level of injury and recovery from serious conditions, such as a broken leg, suggests that others must have collaborated in their care and helped not only to ease pain, but to fight for their survival in such a way that they could regain health and actively participate in the group again. More than 80% of the Neanderthal skeletal remains known to archaeologists display several injuries, some of which may have required simple remedies, such as food and rest, and others, like broken limbs or fractured skulls, would have required serious levels of care due to a high risk to life. Is that comparable to human um, Homo sapiens remains? I'm actually not sure. That's a really good question. I'm I, Like if you took 30 members of homo sapiens.
1: Yeah. If you had a equivalent sample, would 80% of those... This is just
0: speculation on my part, but I suspect not. And I'm only saying that because Neanderthal hunting strategies tended to focus on very large animals. Humans, homo sapiens, they also hunted those large animals, but they also diversified out into smaller, faster game. So... They weren't pursuing the same types of hunting strategies all the time, and so I suspect that the risk, at least from hunting injuries, for Homo sapiens might have been a bit lower. They also hmm. were more likely to run down a prey animal, right? Um, to go running after it, which Neanderthals really didn't do because it was uh, they weren't built as natural long-distance runners the way that yeah, Homo sapiens are sprinters. See our. Mm Tarahumara Runners episode. Good question, though. Yeah, thanks. I'll look into it. (laughs) So (laughs) Neanderthals tended to live in small groups, so any one loss of life was particularly significant to the survival of the whole community. Injury more than disease was was a common threat because Neanderthals didn't typically live in the type of environment or in large enough communities to be at high risk from pathogens, so like a virus or a, uh, a disease that would spread from individual to individual. Neanderthal women, however, were at risk from difficulties in childbirth. The shape of their pelvis and the size and shape of a child's head was fairly similar to that of modern-day humans, so like humans, uh, it is assumed that they would have also encountered some, some common issues that modern women still face today in childbirth. Um, so Dr. Spiken says, it's likely that they would have had assisted childbirth, the role that we now attribute to midwives without support. They probably could not have survived the toll that the death rate of mothers and babies could have taken on those small Neanderthal communities. So I know that in humans, um, the infant, so the, the fetus as it's being born, um, needs to rotate twice to get out of the birth canal. So it's a very complicated process just mechanically. And, um, that's why assisted birth is, is often so important in human births. And so I asked a a colleague of mine, um, Natalie Latacina at Boston university, and she studies, um, human and fossil hominin birth canals. And I asked if, if we knew whether Neanderthal infants would have had to have the same, um, you know, kind of baby acrobatics to get out of the womb. And she said that we're not really sure because there's no soft tissue preserved. So any reconstruction of the birth canal is a little bit speculative, but it would have been relatively difficult for a Neanderthal female to give birth on a comparable level to to human females. So it, it probably wasn't just, you know, group survival pragmatism that resulted in Neanderthals caring for one another. For example, there is one individual found in Shanidar Cave in what's now Iraq who survived for a decade or more despite a withered arm and head injuries that would probably have resulted in sight and hearing loss. And we talked oh, about this yeah. guy. He's Our the one friend. with those crazy bony growths in the ear canals.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: And uh, he, had, he had experienced some severe head trauma and uh, it would have resulted in major uh, sight and hearing loss. So, his survival would almost certainly have been impossible unless group members had provided him with food, water, and shelter, and so that's pretty compelling evidence of altruism. In the array of Neanderthal bones that archaeologists have uncovered, limb fractures often healed without significant deformities, suggesting that they'd been set with some kind of splint. Many of these wounds, such as the severe head traumas and broken ribs, probably would have resulted in significant blood loss and increased risk of infection, but The individual survived long enough for the bones to heal, and the remains lack signs of severe infection, which you can see traces of on the bone. All of this suggests that Neanderthals had some means of dressing wounds and caring for broken bones. So how? Well, we don't really know, because again, no soft tissue preserves. But there are lots of possibilities. So for example, some Inuit groups today use lemming skin. To dress wounds and boils, since it's said to be particularly good at adhering to human flesh. Ooh. So, next time you're in Walgreens.
1: Yeah. Um, pick
0: up, I've pick also up read that spider webs are supposed to be good for packing a wound and stopping blood flow. Again, I have nothing to back that up, but I've read it. So Neanderthals... <laughs> Neanderthals certainly must have accumulated knowledge about the plant and animal resources in their environment. We have solid evidence for Neanderthal groups eating a lot of different plant foods in particular environments. So there's really no reason to think that they wouldn't have some related knowledge about plant or animal-based remedies and healthcare in the same way that ethnographers have observed in human hunter-gatherer groups. Whether these were effective, and if so, why, is a totally different story. And for that story... About Neanderthal drugs, we go to Karen Hardy of the Catalan Institution for Research and Advanced Studies and the Autonomous University of Barcelona. Good Lord. Put that on a sweatshirt. Yeah. Anyway, uh, Dr. Hardy has spent the past six years analyzing the calcified plaque left on Neanderthal teeth, which can carry tiny traces of the foods they ate. In the first of these experiments, Hardy found the chemical signatures of the plants yarrow and chamomile. These plants taste extremely bitter and have little nutritional value by themselves, so why eat them? The reason the plants taste bitter is because they contain salicylic acid, which is the same painkiller that we now call acetaminophen. It's aspirin. Oh, and it's
1: also, salicylic acid is also what's used in a lot of, like, skincare stuff Mm -hmm. for, like, combating, like, acne and, what, like, dermatitis and, like, all kinds of different things. Mm Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So, I mean, it's not confirmation that this was deliberate self medication, but it's really interesting that these are not plants that taste good, not plants that you would voluntarily eat because you want them. So, right. that I mean, it raises the question was it some form of, did they have this indigenous Neanderthal knowledge?
1: Yeah. Is it like herbalism or? Yeah,
0: exactly. Um, Another example of possible self-medication comes from the site of El Cidron, which is a cave in Spain. And this is a study published in the journal Nature fairly recently, I think within the past two years. Researchers extracted ancient DNA and bacteria from a Neanderthal male's teeth. So this dental calculus, the calcified plaque, it can even preserve bacteria and you can get DNA from that bacteria. So this individual... Was suffering from a dental abscess, gross, possibly caused by a subspecies of the bacterium Methanobrevibacter oralis. Okay, other DNA found in his mouth was from the poplar tree. Poplar bark also contains salicylic acid, um, and other tests showed that this poor guy was also dealing with diarrhea and vomiting caused by a different pathogen found in his mouth, Enterocytozoon by a new C for all of our bacteriologists out there who really want to know the names of those (laughs) pathogens. You're welcome. Um, and he even may, so this back to the Neanderthal, he even may have turned to antibiotic producing molds for treatment. Um, another thing that was found in his mouth was genetic material from Penicillium Rubens. Um, and it's not conclusive proof again, that this individual was consuming antibacterial mold to deal with these gastric issues, but it's a really interesting suggestion. Wow. How'd that mold okay. get in there?
1: I, yeah. Yeah. We talked about what Anna knows about, and so now we'll talk about what I know about. <laughs> and this is also <laughs> a are bit our, of a- the
0: only two <laughs> categories. <laughs>
1: <Yeah>. <laughs> um, and so a little bit of, a, of another throwback. Um, back when we talked about boogie people, I waxed poetic about my girl Amash, too. Um, and her role in Mesopotamian cosmology as something of a divine sanctioned force of destruction. Patron and, demoness of the dirt. Yes. Yes. <laughs> I also mentioned that a lot of what we know about warding off Lamash Lamashtu comes from the Library of Ashurbanipal, which um, coincidentally, you can go check out that um, exhibition at the British Museum that's going on right now called I Am Ashurbanipal, King of the World, King of Assyria, uh, brought to you by British Petroleum um which (laughs) it's true
0: yeah but they're not our sponsor
1: (laughs) no the library of Ashurbanipal provides us with the largest corpus of medical knowledge from assyria and the mesopotamian world um and so before i go any further i want to make sure that i am clear with my terms so we've got assyria which was a kingdom with its capital in asher and in what's today northern iraq and then Babylonia was a kingdom with its capital at Babylon in what's today Southern Iraq. And so from the late fourth millennium through the late first millennium uh, before the common era, Babylonia and Assyria struggled over and traded off control of, um, or at least major influence over Mesopotamia, which is the you know between the rivers, the areas between the Tigris and Euphrates rivers, and then the wider empire that at one point stretched all the way to the Mediterranean coast, up into Anatolia, which is now Turkey, and into what is today Iran. So there are many other city-states rolled up into the category of Mesopotamia, and I'm going to be mentioning some of them. Um, but over those few thousand years, they aren't necessarily Babylonian or Assyrian. But they are all related. So they're not interchangeable, but they are connected. Okay. Thank you for coming to my TED talk. (laughs) Now back to Mesopotamian medicine. Yay. So, so I'm going to, so Herodotus, the father of history, um, he, he described, he's had all kinds of nonsense to say about Babylonia. Um, and he described Babylonian medicine, um, as something of a first millennium BCE Reddit. Um, He definitely didn't call it Reddit. Yeah, but listen to it. It's Reddit. He says, quote, They bring out all their sick into the streets, for they have no regular doctors. People that come along offer the sick man advice, either from what they personally have found to cure such a complaint or what they have known someone else to be cured by. No one is allowed to pass by a sick person without asking him what ails him.
0: Yeah, it's Reddit.
1: That sounds like the internet, right? Actually, uh, we have a lot of clues about what medicine in ancient Mesopotamia did involve, from both textual sources and archaeological research. And as a result, this, like much of what Herodotus said in the histories, was totally silly and untrue. Um, because Mesopotamia had both medical professionals and places where sick people were treated and allowed to recover under supervision. So they didn't have, like, large hospitals, but they there were sort of physicians' offices that would have beds.
0: Outpatient um, clinics.
1: Well, and, and inpatient treatment, just like small, low residency.
0: Ah, okay.
1: Um, it, and so we have um, a categorized list of physicians' equipment from Ugarit. And Ugarit's on the Mediterranean coast in what's today Syria. And I'll include uh, some information to kind of jump off in that direction. But Ugarit was a sort of rather wealthy city-state. Um, and we have a ton of really well-preserved um, Art and and cuneiform tablets from there, and so
0: a category of of cuneiform literature is just lists, just like lists. I love all the the Mesopotamian. They're so organized. They yeah, just they just they they love so a good administrative.
1: List. Yeah, and and so the this one has um, physicians' equipment and it includes a bed and a coverlet, and that, because the bed would serve as both an operating table and a bed. Uh, right. So, so you, you know. Make sure to change that coverlet. Yes. (laughs) Post-surgery. And there are also different surgical instruments and other medical equipment, including items for the storage, weighing, preparation, and administration of medicines, which that includes, like, scales and strainers and mixing bowls and maybe forceps for holding ingredients over heat. So if you need to, like, heat something up so you hold it over the fire. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, unfortunately... um, as is the case with a lot of different uh, areas of specialized knowledge, we don't necessarily know what the words mean uh, because right. it is a, a, a jargon. So there's a lot of jargon that we don't quite
0: understand. And so it's I thought you of- were going to say because we couldn't understand the doctor's handwriting. Oh goodness! Hey-o. oh, <laughs>
1: and, and and so we there are there are gaps in our knowledge, but we know. But we, we know enough from context clues, um, and like lexical lists, but also just, um, there is enough of a, like a robust language around this that they thought a lot about it and there was a lot involved. So the professionals that used the, all this equipment and performed surgical and herbal treatments on patients were known as ASU. And so we have a, we have a view, albeit a narrow one into Mesopotamian pharmacology. Uh, From a few tablets. There's a cuneiform tablet that was written in Sumerian, dating to around uh, 3000 BCE, that details 15 pharmaceutical prescriptions. Uh, But it lacks the context that we provided by the names of the associated diseases or the amounts of the ingredients. So they aren't recipes and they aren't, it's not like a manual. It's just a list because they love a good list. The things that are in these include faunal, botanical, and mineral. So they've got sodium chloride, salt, uh, potassium yep, yep, nitrate, that one. which is saltpeter. You got milk, you got snakeskin, you got turtle shell, you got cassia, you got myrtle, you got asafetida, you got thyme, willow, pear, fig, fir, and date. Um it right, started off kind of sciencey
0: and then took a hard <laughs> left into zoo. Date. And yeah. then very herbal. Yeah,
1: yeah very herbal. Um, and so all parts of plant anatomy were, were utilized. You, so you would have, um, like entire branches or roots. You'd have the seeds, the flowers, bark, sap, or, um, like, what is it? Distill, ah, like an extract. Es- essential or you, oil. Yeah, right. Yeah. You would use, like, you could also use oils or distillations. Um, and so these were, Administered in sort of vehicles of honey, water, beer, wine, or bitumen. So tar. That's Actually occurring tar. Well, it would take be a, either take as, a tar pill. Well, some of it is. Oh, it could be consumed. external. Yeah. So there okay. are. Yeah. So there are. Um, There are prescriptions for taking things internally, so consuming them or using as a poultice is like putting it on you. Um, There's also some uh, prescriptions for suppositories. Hopefully, you're not getting a bitumen suppository because that would be sticky. So sticky. sticky. Yeah. (laughs) Ugh. And um, so there's there's another tablet. So this is but this is about two thousand years later. So one thousand BCE. Um, there's an inventory tablet again, a list um, that tells us a whole lot more. And it lists more than two hundred and fifty medicinal plants, one hundred and twenty mineral substances, and one hundred and eighty other drugs that are used in combination with um, alcohol, buoyant, fats, honey, milks oils, wax, and parts and products of animals. Kind of the toolbox that an Asu was working with is pretty big. It's got a lot of tools in it. And so there was, there was a very um, robust system of knowledge. Um, and Asu went to med school. So Asu doctors, <laughs> uh, they trained in schools associated with temples of the goddess of medicine and healing, whose name was Gula. And so they were educated using a combination of textbooks that were consisted of clay tablets. Um, they would go on, let's basically rounds. They would do. Yeah. So they would, they would have a residency, but not really. Yeah. And a practical experience. And so the ASU focused more on the patient's accounts of their illnesses than on a physical examination. Um, and they usually dealt with kind of obvious external illnesses, such as like wounds or. Oh, good. Cause you don't really have
0: to examine someone to notice that they have. Right. Like yeah. A so they they aren't
1: like they aren't like checking your like reflexes and stuff and like looking in your mouth you're just like ow oh. and they're like yep. <laughs> yep. <laughs> I got and you. So So they they dealt a lot with with wounds or uh, surgery so they sort of created wounds or and then well, helped okay. heal them or yeah. existing wounds. So sort of it's a big part of it was um, wound care but we don't have any evidence that they kind of sutured or cauterized or anything like that. Um, they were just really good at like, keeping it clean and dressing it. Um, and that Sumerian those tablet, those are two important steps. Yeah. Those are two of the, of the three. They're two for three. Um, and so there's one prescription that details the washing of the diseased part. So there's the, we don't know of a specific Sumerian word for wound. <laughs> the so. ouchie yeah so yeah so you you'd wash your owie with beer and hot water so like having something that has alcohol cause remember it's not like the low ABV alcohols that
0: it's that no Budweiser
1: right yeah so you're not putting like crew. Coors Light on on your wound like this is like some potent alcohol um and and hot water and so um it's kind of good great it's a pretty good wound wash and plasters were relatively unsophisticated, considering, like, the crazy, like, elaborate prescriptions that other things use. Um, but it's usually mineral oil and then river mud. One so, for two. Yeah. Yeah. So the Asu doctors performed all kinds of surgeries with their lancets, but usually um, to relieve pressure or drain abscesses or remove growths. They weren't doing, like, appendectomies and things. Mm-hmm. Um or exploratory surgeries. Um, and, What's in there? And so, yeah. And so, if you have a less obvious ailment, like a less apparent ailment, there's another type of doctor that you would go to in Mesopotamia.
0: The scary um, kind.
1: Yeah, and he's the one you would call if you had a Lamache to on your hands. Um, and he's the ashipu. So you've got your asu who are dealing with very sort of corporeal of this plane, kind of natural phenomenon and you can say real world it's okay well no you got the ashipu that are dealing with with a more like spiritual aspect of of ailment so depending on where what the sort of what the the origin of your your ailment is and in certain manifestations and so you have that kind of religious aspect and then also the very like tangible physical aspect and they kind of work in concert rather than competition oh that's good yeah. And so, um, so there would be times where you'd be like, Oh, I can't do anything about it. You've got to go see an Ashipu. And they'd be like, Oh, well, why are you talking to me? Just go over and see your Asu. He'll lance that. So we have a little bit further. Um, so in the Code of Hammurabi, um, so that's around 1700 BCE. Um, the text differentiates religious healers in two classes. You've got the, the Baru, who are the, um, the the diviners and they practiced hepatoscopy,
0: mm-hmm.
1: Hepata- hepatoscopy maybe hepatoscopy. Thank you. I had it earlier today. I've been saying it all day. Um, hepatoscopy. So looking at your liver, mm-hmm. um, and they would make prognoses from that, and you'd have exorcists, the the more conventional ashipu, who uh, I would, have a question.
0: Yes, hepatoscopy. They look at your liver. How closely do they look at your liver? No, they look
1: at livers. I'm getting there. No spoilers. So they look at, they look at liver. Okay. And there's no possessive pronoun there. Okay. Um, Okay. And, and so then you've got the exorcists, the Ashipu, who would figure out what offense to the gods or demons had brought about the disease. Ashipu also had medicines in their, in their pharmacy, um, mostly in the arena of opiates. Oh. Um yeah so they so they had um uh, narcotics that were derived from cannabis sativa mm-hmm. um hopefully identified as hemp <laughs> um mandrake darnell, and the opium poppy uh there is evidence that opium poppies were already definitely in use um in the regions writing text in sumerian by 3000 BCE but probably it was just for the Ashipu and priests in healing temples, it's not just rando priests. Um, and then they also, they used opiates, but they also used hemlock as a, um, an option for euthanasia. Interesting. So yeah. So, and hemlock is what Socrates very famously consumed. Yes. Ashipu exorcists had prescriptions of their own. So that would either be things used along with these, the, the medications but they were rituals that were performed to drive away whatever demonic malady you had while these Baru, the folks that did, hep, what is it? Hepatoscopy. Hepat- yeah. So the Baru who do the hepatoscopy they focused on signs from the liver and gallbladder or if they looked at the internal organs as a whole that's extispacy. Um hmm. and this would be from a sacrificial animal. So they don't they don't get in there and dig around in your tummy. They get like a bit of a goat. Yep. Um, and so the baru would look for certain irregularities in sort of the state or the color or the shape of these organs. Um, and it would be, they'd look for things like atrophy or hypertrophy, displacement or like weird markings um, anything that seems out of the ordinary, they would note and look up on references, ma- re- on their reference materials. They would look up at WebMD. Yeah. Well, they, they, you know, they would have their... Goat MD. No, because they were like doctors. This isn't, this isn't like sitting in the street. <laughs> this isn't the the Reddit of, of, um, Herodotus. They would look it up in their
0: like desk reference, their in physician's their desk books. reference. The, yeah. The Gray's Grey's Anatomy. Goats yeah, anatomy. and
1: and from all these signs, they would determine the root cause and a course of action, and so there was something of a science, yeah, to for sure. the work because there was a, a degree of internal consistency and reference materials, and we have um, several like several physical examples um, of reference models that were used by students who were learning how to be a baru. Oh, I've um, seen these like bronze
0: bronze livers and stuff.
1: Well, the, yeah, right? they're usually they're usually stone, yeah, and oh, so they are I'm the bronze one. Uh, there, there is a f- sort of famous one that's stone, but it, it's a greenish stone, so it could.
0: Oh, also, I'm thinking one. of um, there is a series of like bronze hemorrhoids that were dedicated at a Greek temple at one point. Never mind. Yeah,
1: no, definitely not that. That's um, And so they, that so y- you would have you have the the little model, the little clay model of the um liver and gallbladder and it would be divided up into on a grid and there it's like depending on where the thing was, um, you would look it up with your cuneiform text. And you'd be like, okay, we got a, we got a weird spot here. We got a lump here and it's funny colored here. And then you go and you look it up and you're like, oh, cool. But I'll include a link to an Atlas Obscura story that has lots of pictures of liver models, um, as well as more information along the kind of um, omens for kingdoms track. Cool. But, so that is
0: some stuff I know. Thank you for also <laughs> putting that stuff in my brain which is something I tried to do with this next segment and, and sort of emerged only slightly less knowledgeable. So um, I decided that I wanted to investigate a different part of the world um, just so that we weren't only sticking to the stuff we knew. So I hopped outside of my wheelhouse and decided to look into Ayurvedic medicine. And it's something that I really knew very little about except for... Kind of the bits and pieces that have been co-opted by people in modern times, selling like turmeric lattes and herbal yeah, cleanses. So people in Berkeley, we can. <laughs> All right. I, I wasn't gonna. <laughs> um, so I mean, I was yeah. really looking forward to. I I was happy to have a reason to look into the real history of Ayurveda, um, and I don't know if I learned anything because it all seemed a lot like pseudoscience to me. And I, you know, I'm a very empirically minded person. I tend to only trust medical things if they've been vetted by the FDA or a a doctor that I trust. So I'm not sure where I stand on Ayurveda. I'm I'm in no way disparaging uh, the belief system that comes along with it, but... Let's well see. is it also
1: like a language thing? Is this another ca- is this like another instance where you've got yoga which is like a real thing and then you've got yoga which is a thing that's been translated into English and like western
0: upper middle class culture and it kind of loses its To some extent I think that's true. I think this okay. is very much like yoga sort of a, a way of living like a practice that um, has been sort of morphed into something different, but I I had a lot of trouble finding actual, um, sort of legit texts on Ayurveda. I successfully like like peer reviewed medical, like nobody's saying like, let's test it. They're not doing like longitudinal studies. No, I couldn't find much about that. I, I found, I successfully found the vaguest article of all time (laughs) and then a slightly more helpful one. So I'm going to, I'm going to quote from the more helpful one. Um, okay. But you'll see on the script I included the link to the vaguest article of all time, in case me, you want to get annoyed by is it, it Ayurveda? too. Ayurveda? <laughs> it's just a picture of the one? shrug emoji. Uh, okay. okay, so Ayurveda includes the belief that the entire universe is composed of five elements, air, water, space or ether, earth, and fire. And so these... Five elements are believed to form the three basic humors of the human body in varying combinations. So the three humors, vata dosha, pitta dosha, and kapha dosha, are collectively called tridoshas because there's three of them, and they control the basic physiological functions of the body, along with five subdoshas for each of the principal doshas. So Ayurveda um, holds that the human body consists of seven tissues. And these are fluids, fat and connective tissue, blood, bones, marrow, muscle, semen, and waste. And so, waste includes feces, urine, and sweat. And Ayurveda has eight ways to diagnose illness using the pulse, urine, feces, tongue, speech, touch, vision, and appearance. And then Ayurvedic practice, practitioners approach diagnosis by using the five senses. So, for example, hearing is a, used to observe a patient's breathing or their speech. Everything that you consume has certain attributes that contribute to these uh, seven major tissues in different proportions. And so, to stay healthy, you have to keep all those proportions steady. So, you need to balance what you consume. And so that is mostly what I took away is that the principle of Ayurvedic medicine is very much about keeping these these parts, these components of what makes up your body consistent. And so you have to balance everything in your life in order to to keep everything purring along nicely. And to me, that sounds a whole lot like the Greek slash Roman slash medieval doctrine of of the bodily humors, which was sort of taken up by the, the early Dr. Galen. Um, yeah, and then um, and it continued through the, the Middle Ages and the Renaissance. and it is absolutely pseudoscience.
1: Yeah, well, it's what a bummer that um, this hasn't been, or at least as far as you can tell, this hasn't been um, explored more.
0: I'm kind of hoping that someone will reach out to us um, at least with maybe some resources because I really, I did a bunch of looking both online and at the university library here and I wasn't really able to find anything beyond like Deepak Chopra and I would like to have more.
1: Yeah. Deepak Chopra doesn't, doesn't get published in like the uh, New England Journal of Medicine much.
0: No. Uh, So, you know, I'd like to, I'd like to know what's, what's some, what some medical professionals have to say about it.
1: Yeah. And that's also um, kind of doing a disservice to any um, valuable contributions that IV medicine can make because yeah. like something that we talk about a lot on the show is that like indigenous knowledge is legitimate knowledge. And so like indigenous can be extended to like just non-Western knowledge can be is very often seen as illegitimate, but there is value to it. And so is this something that's just been disregarded? I don't, yeah. I don't
0: know. Yeah. And so, you know, just before you fire up that email machine, that's not to say that teachings derived from Ayurveda and put to practical medical use won't work or, are or, or are invalid. Again, I, I'm sure there are maybe some legit remedies in there. It's, it's a huge body of knowledge that's still yeah. pulled from today, but uh, you know, again, I am a scientist at heart. And so until I see peer reviewed or FDA FDA approved research, I'm skeptical, but yeah, but, but there, there are both. things. Yeah. <laughs> this is where, this is where it gets fun. I'm ready. I'm ready for fun. Okay. Um, All right. Let's talk about some traditional medicine that actually uh, turns out to be pretty legit. Yeah. Well, we mentioned,
1: um, so we mentioned in, I think it was last month's um, old news. We talked about a um, body of work that's just been published.
0: Um, that's like it's indigenous. Bi- and for... an an amazonian indigenous group for their their shamans to to pass on knowledge
1: yeah and so um there have been multiple instances of medical professionals in these in these communities that have passed away without having somebody to receive their knowledge um and so rather oral
0: teaching tradition
1: yes yeah and so rather than uh running the risk of losing any more of this like sacred and health oriented knowledge. Um, There I think it was an NGO that, that helped make this happen where this group has written in its own language and there is no intention to translate it out of this language, like a handbook, basically an Mm -hmm. encyclopedia of like a pharmacological encyclopedia for this group. Um, And the article that we talked about in our old news episode made reference to instances where, Um, you've got pharmaceutical companies or other organizations that kind of come and take and exploit this, this knowledge, um, and give nothing to the, to the community from which they've taken it, or perhaps put the community in peril. Um, and so this is something to preserve knowledge, but also prevent the, um, sort of wrongful exploitation of this knowledge. Yeah, Exactly. And so I've been, we've been thinking about this a little bit more. And so there are, there are um, traditional medicinal plants that have been shown by recent studies, um, many of them by the Mayo Clinic, uh, that actually exhibit some efficacy. And so please, if you feel like we shouldn't have to say this, but we should have to say this. Uh, the Dirt is not a show where medical professionals tell you about medicine and we are not your doctor. If, if Anna, you've shown up to the dirt expecting medical <laughs> advice. Yeah. What Anna are you doing? Is, Anna is not your doctor. Um, if you are planning, if you want to consume any of these plants or extracts into your diet, talk to a real doctor and not yeah. us.
0: Especially because uh, as helpful as these uh, extracts or plants may be, the the dosage is key. The dosage depends on whether it's a a cure or a poison. So please, yeah. Many of these can have adverse effects in certain quantities. So please, everything, please, please, yeah. Like adverse effects, everything from like pooping
1: too much to dying, dying too much. So we don't we don't want you to do either of those things too much. But let's get let's get it. Let's start easy. Yep. We,
0: okay. So yeah. With, let's with aloe. Let's start, <laughs> let's start with aloe. <laughs> That's nice. Why don't we just alternate? You go yeah, first. okay.
1: Okay, so aloe, aloe vera, um, has a Hello. gel inside. <laughs> uh, it has a gel inside its leaves. Aloe vera gel. Uh, and it is a superior remedy for burns. It's great. Uh, you can use it for thermal burns or sunburns or just any kind of like skin irritation. Um, and it's great. And aloe vera juice is less great tasting. So it's intended for internal use and its main use is to help heal ulcers and other intestinal irritations, which I know less about, but I know you can buy it. And the juice is not usually tasty unless it's mixed in with something else. Um, but if you're just drinking that straight up aloe vera juice, that AJ, um <laughs> you only really need like a teaspoon or so after meals. Um, <laughs> because otherwise... I just did finger guns for no reason. Um, that juice becomes a laxative. <laughs> uh, but uh, if you don't do burn, that.
0: <laughs> put some aloe on that burn. <laughs> Onto black cohosh, which is also known as squaw root, <laughs> uh, and the extract has long been known to alleviate menstrual cramps. And then Oof. recent experiments suggest that the tea made from this root does, in fact, contain sedative and anti-inflammatory components. Um, but again toxic in large doses and if you are pregnant do not take any uh next we've got
1: blackberry root um and I like so blackberries if yeah yeah
0: and so <laughs> sorry, if you if... let me put in my two cents <laughs> yeah okay
1: sorry um, I just yeah like a if, if you uh <laughs> if you drank too much aloe juice and you're pooping too much, you can use blackberry root as an herbal remedy for diarrhea. Um, users can find tinctures, tinctures, users can find tinctures, oh, it's not getting any better. <laughs> users can find tinctures
0: in health food stores. What do you call a fairy that administers homeopathics? Tincture bell. <laughs> <laughs> I am immensely pleased with myself. Uh, how about cayenne pepper? First introduced to the old it? world by your friend and mine, Christopher Colon Columbus. Uh. Um, and then since then, doy this this article, cayenne has become a <laughs> culinary and medicinal staple. Uh, but it it has it uh, genuinely does have analgesic properties, and it's been used as remedies for things like toothache. People say that it's a digestive aid. I have never found that to be the case. I... <laughs> I've i had um, the opposite finding, but that's well, just my tum-tum.
1: I don't know. I have a lot of anecdotal evidence, both for and against
0: that. that... Yeah, and, you know, cayenne, it includes capsaicin, which is the thing right. that makes hot, hot peppers hot. And it's something that people use and have used for a long time externally as – um, relief for arthritic pain or, you know, yeah. sore, strained muscles. Isn't it, isn't it muscles? The, the hot and the icy hot? It is. Yeah. The icy is menthol, in case you were wondering. Uh, next, chamomile. My mom grows Are you grows it. a Neanderthal? Well, I mean, Your it not. tastes better when you put it in tea than when you just straight up chew <laughs> on it.
1: But it's, and so it's a great home remedy for upset tum-tums. So if you had too much cayenne. This is it's a there's a, well, it's a, like a self-referential.
0: <laughs> yeah.
1: Um and so uh chamomile is is thought to be able to relieve heartburn, indigestion, and colic. Um it's also a mild, relaxant and sedative, which is why you drink chamomile tea before bedtime.
0: I've never found that successful because I feel mildly soothed, but then I have to pee for the next four hours. Right. Um <laughs> Moving on to cinnamon, which, uh, you know, seems like a very, a very warm spice and it will actually warm you up because it promotes healthy circulation. Before you do this next entry, I object strongly to this wording. I did not write this. Go ahead.
1: Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, dandelion, um, so dandelion not only makes for a delicious jelly, if you really have, yeah, dandelion jelly. Um, from, it's, what, it's from what
0: part of from the, the flowers?
1: Theme? Yeah. So dandelion greens, if you yeah. get them, if you get them real young, you like eat them raw and they're very zippy. If they're, if they're bigger, so more mature, you can, they make for an excellent pesto. Uh, but you can make a tea. You can make a tea out of it to, um, help relieve kidney and liver disorders. And then, the author of this article really puts it out there and says, it is not
0: toxic, so no worries about overdosing. Never say that. Never say that. But <laughs> That sounds like a challenge. I know. I, um, and I will say that dandelion is uh, a mild diuretic, which means yeah, it'll make so, you pee a lot.
1: But it also makes sense. I guess it kind of helps. It kind of makes it's, it's you know, to me, a person who knows nothing about medicine and just told you about people like reading goat livers. Um it makes sense that it would be helpful with kidneys because if it has a diuretic effect. You like flush it on out of there.
0: No, and that, kidneys and that liver. Does so it, if it's but if you it's absolutely part of can like, overdose. Yeah, and and don't, <laughs> don't, don't. Like I don't care if it's not toxic. Don't don't have too much of it. Yeah. Anyway, because you'll like turn yellow or something. Like, something like that. At minimum, something weird will happen to you. <laughs> yeah. I'm just realizing how long this list is, but um, so I'm just gonna. Pick a few highlights. Okay. Um, Echinacea, that one is definitely an antibiotic, and it can enhance your immune system. Eucalyptus, if you've got uh, eucalyptus handy, it is uh, the oils from the leaves can relieve chest congestion and bronchial problems. uh, Not necessarily by ingestion, but you can pour hot water over the leaves and kind of inhale the steam. That's nice. That's like a a natural Vicks vapor rub. Fennel seed for uh bloating and gas. It'll clear you right out. Garlic is known Have as... you ever
1: had have you ever had fennel seed like at um, Indian restaurants? They'll have Yeah that's I like like really little, like those little, little candied things. ones. I do like yeah. those yeah so those are good for your tongue.
0: Yeah it also leaves you feeling very fresh yeah. in the mouth. <laughs> um, ginseng has been known for a long, long time as uh, an energy booster. And uh, psyllium... This it's seeds from a plantain species, great source of fiber, and tea tree oil. This is good for skin and nail fungal infections. You can just kind of paint it on there a couple times a day, and it'll help. It's antibacterial. As is coconut oil. So if you've got if you've got a burn or a scratch or something that you want to help it heal a little bit faster, you can rub a little uh, coconut oil on there, and then you smell nice too. Talk to a doctor. Yeah, please talk to a doctor and not. <laughs> I mean, talk to me, but not about this. I mean, I do. Yeah, <laughs> but like, I'm not gonna give you serious medical advice. Yeah, I mean, well, I'll be let's like, talk about some I'll silly be, like, medical your hands advice, and like, yes, let's talk about some straight up nonsense. <laughs> um, and I'm saying that respectfully and with love because it, you know, it refers to historical medical practices. People didn't have the the wealth of information that we do now everything you know we all seem like a genius in hindsight yeah we've got evidence of people that like knew what was up like or seemed to have known what was
1: up re medical practices um hundreds of years ago thousands of years ago tens of thousands of years ago and then not so long ago we've got evidence of people that definitely did not know what was up
0: yeah but persist anyway so we're going to talk a little bit about that uh in this section on sympathetic medicine sympathetic not Which... in the sense of like mm-hmm. But in the sense <laughs> of sympathy, which is a real or supposed affinity, correspondence, or occult influence between two things. Basically, the, the most common and widespread of these sympathetic medicine um, ideas were, were based on the, the thought that substances similar in color, shape, or substance to whatever body part, bodily fluid, or cause of your illness, that would make a good cure. And so well into the 18th century, when you think people would know better, apothecary handbooks were full of recipes containing predominantly red ingredients that were prescribed to strengthen the blood or the heart. And then similarly, grasses that look like snakes were recommended to cure snake bites. If okay, you had so. a headache, you take <laughs> some powdered human skull, et cetera. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. And then uh, something that I saw, a couple examples of a popular 19th century and, and before. Medical accessory was a human tooth. And sometimes for rich folks, you'd see it in these lovely silver necklace settings. And if you have a toothache, you wear that around your neck. But now that's just called Etsy. <laughs> Zing. You need some aloe vera Put for some that burn, Etsy. Hey. Oh, man. <laughs> thanks for listening to us do that everybody we hope that you got your
1: flu shot if you are in a population that can get a flu shot
0: yeah and we hope that you're feeling well and if you're under the weather we hope you get better soon Yeah.
1: Um, and if you need something to occupy you ugh, I feel gross making that transition but you can find us on SoundCloud on iTunes and wherever you get your podcast
0: fix Unless it's Spotify. You can follow us on Facebook at The Dirt Podcast. On Twitter, we are at Dirt Podcast. On Instagram, we're at The Dirt Pod. And all of that can be found on our website, thedirtpod.com.
1: And you can send us that cash money and uh, episode ideas either there on our website or
0: contact us via thedirtpodcast at gmail.com. Uh, You can support us on Patreon by becoming a monthly subscriber at several attractively priced tiers or a single-time donor of any amount. And either way, we would be extremely grateful. Patreon.com slash thedirtpodcast. And if you want to see what we want to do with the money that we get from our patrons, it doesn't just go into our pockets. We put it right back into the show to make it better and more fun for you, the listener. And to see that, you can go to thedirtpod.com slash goals. Thanks for listening. We love you. Thanks. Bye. Bye.